I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. Time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, December 12th, 2011. Just finished the third Sunday of Advent. Strange to think, you got one more Sunday left and then Christmas will be upon us. I'm excited. We'll be spending some time with my family. <sighs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Why? because there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, as we lead off on the program today, I want to thank all of you who have uh, sent me uh, notes and messages and emails uh, letting me know that uh, my brother Mark is in your prayers. Now, as of the time that I'm recording this program, we still don't know much uh, more than what I revealed about my brother on Friday. We do know that sometime soon... Uh, in the next few days, he's going to be undergoing uh, surgery to remove the tumor in his brain. And so if you can continue to keep my brother Mark in your prayers, uh, he, his family, our family, it, it, that would be uh, very much appreciated. So I'm going to carry on today uh, as if it's a normal day and just pretend that it's normal. Because, you know, <laughs> I, I, there, there's nothing else I could do. I, can't, I It's like I could sit there and uh, and be all anxious and everything, but that doesn't make any sense. And so uh, we're just going to carry on as if it's a normal day. So today is a normal broadcast day. And if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, uh, then you saw that I sent out a, a, a tweet. I still hate that word. I sent out a tweet and a status update today, basically letting everybody know that uh, I will be reviewing what I believe is the worst Christmas sermon that I have ever ever heard in my entire life in hour number two today and you're going really worst christmas sermon that you've ever heard well chris you listen to a lot of sermons and i would say right i listen to a lot of sermons in fact you know on a day to day basis i listen to more sermons uh than i review here on the program why 
because I spend a lot of time previewing and making decisions regarding what sermons I will be reviewing here at Fighting for the Faith. And so, uh, you know, for every sermon that makes the cut, there could be anywhere from five to eight that don't. Um, On a bad week, (laughs) ten. So it's just depends. And so, you know, it's, it, it, it all, you know, anyway, like I said, I, I've, if you've listened to the program for any length of time, I claim to, uh, to basically hold in my possession on my hard drive, the largest collection of bad sermons on the planet, uh, the largest collection of bad sermons on the planet. I've, in fact, I've lost count of how many I've currently got on my hard drive. Hang on a second here. Uh, checking my hard drive. Okay, now here's the deal. I, By the way, I don't keep all of them forever. Uh, at some point, I do take them off of this hard drive on my laptop and put them onto a um, an archive hard drive that I keep. Uh, a C- a Seagate, uh, is it 3 gigger that I got now? Uh, th- 3 terabytes. Uh, yeah, I got it. Yep, I got a, t- a Seagate 3 terabyte uh, hard drive that I use for archiving at the moment in the studio. But anyway, looking on what's basically what's currently on my laptop, sermon-wise, uh, 2,673 sermons. 2,673. It seems a little unmanageable, don't you think? Anyway, here's the deal. If there is ever a connoisseur of bad sermons, if, I mean, in fact, if they were to have an, a university uh, that uh, said, you know what, Chris, we would like you to come in and be our doctor of bad sermonology. Uh, I, I, could, I could earn a doctorate in this, easily, easily earn a doctorate in bad sermonology. And uh, and and after going through the program, it, an honor would be desto- bestowed upon me. And uh, and now today, uh, in as well as presenting uh, Chris Roseborough with his doctorate in bad sermonology, we will be presenting him also with an award. And and uh, Doctor Roseborough, would you please come to the podium? And people, you know, yes, uh, we would like to bestow on you the honor of uh, the uh, of this recognition, the certificate, acknowledging the fact that you have the world's greatest collection of bad sermons on the planet, and you have subjected yourself uh, selflessly and to all of these bad sermons on behalf of the body of Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And yeah, so do you have any words to say? <laughs> I would approach the podium and say, I can't believe that this is what I do for a living. Anyway, thank you. And so... <sighs> so, all of that is basically to say this, okay? This sermon is awful. This sermon I, my jaw was on the floor. In fact, it just bypassed my desktop and went right to the floor. It left a hole in my desktop as my jaw passed through the desk, left a hole, and then traveled all the way to the floor while listening to the sermon. And uh, let's just put it this way. Have you ever heard a Christmas sermon that takes the story of Christmas and twists it so it isn't about Jesus? It's about you and your life. <laughs> yeah, you, you're going to want to stay tuned. By the way, the person preaching the sermon, I know you're all sitting there going, well, who's preaching it? Is it Mike Bickle from IHOP? Is it Bill Johnson from Redding, California? Uh, who is this that's preaching the worst Christmas sermon you've ever heard? Answer, Troy Grambling of Potential Church uh, out there in Florida. Yeah, Potential Church. Uh, I, we, we've reviewed sermons from Potential Church in the past. Um, most recently, 
uh, we reviewed a sermon where they, during their fall kickoff, they had a sermon series based upon the Wizard of Oz. Well, so, and, and I refer to them lovingly as a, a potential church, the church that's not a church yet. They're just a church in potential. But boy, I got to tell you, I, <laughs> get ready for some narcissistic eisegesis like you've never heard in your life. I mean, like nobody's business. This this is the worst example of narcissistic eisegesis that I have ever. It's breathtakingly bad. So anyway, that's just to let you know what we're going to do. Do we be doing in hour number two today? So anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about during the rest of the time. Okay, so I got a feminist um, theology update. Uh, remember a while ago we did the segment where we were talking about the un- upcoming ELCA uh, conference, women feminist theology conference that included a priestess from ISIS you know, that that worshipped ISIS? Well, we've got an update uh, regarding that from uh, the HerChurch.org website. And uh, there's a synopsis, a summary, a review of the Faith and Feminism Womanist uh, Majorista Conference of 2011. And so I, I'll be reading that review for you so you can hear uh, what uh, emergent feminist theologians from the ELCA are up to because... I just know you're dying to know this. And uh, then let's see here. I've got a a Todd Bentley update. Apparently he's been spending some time in Great Britain. And um, one of the uh, newspapers there in uh, Great Britain has uh, written an article entitled Beware of the Tattoo Preacher. And believe me, I think they got this one right. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I've got got an article entitled Do You Believe in Santa Christ? Do You Believe in Santa Christ? From the Ligonier... Uh, .org website, written by Nathan W. Bingham, uh, somebody I follow on Twitter, and I think he's from Australia, if I am not mistaken, but uh, I want to read that article. Um, I've got a Circle Maker update. In fact, I've even picked out Circle Maker update music because I do detect that uh, we will be discussing the Circle Maker on an ongoing basis here at Fighting for the Faith. Why? Because I just am absolutely convinced this is a completely bad false teaching regarding prayer and uh, and in fact in some ways kind of blurs the line between witchcraft and prayer you know yeah circle casting is not a christian practice nor does it have anything to do with how jesus taught us how to pray and uh, and so we got that let's see here i i, I think that's going to pretty much do it uh, although i might get to a christian post news story later in the program uh, right before our sermon review entitled most popular christmas film uh, films leave out christ and I, yeah, I want to rename that most popular um, uh, uh, Christian sermons about Christmas. Leave out Christ too. I just, you know, I just that's something I'm thinking about. But anyway, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and I think I'm going to start off with our uh, feminist update. So <clears throat> here, here we go. And I've been down there on the floor. No, 
all right, yeah, that's appropriate music. So uh, this is from the uh, HerChurch.org uh, website, HerChurch.org. And uh, this is a review uh, of the uh, Faith and Feminism Womanist Mujerista Conference of 2011. Um, and uh, this was written by Jan Aldridge Clayton, Ph.D. So this is by Dr. Jan Aldridge Clanton, sorry, Clanton, uh, Ph.D. Uh, <clears throat> so, quote, returning to the mother of us all, a, a chant led by drumming, Priestess Dion Culler resounds from the balcony throughout the sanctuary of sanctuary of Ebenezer Her Church Lutheran on the opening night of the conference and again in the Sunday morning worship service. As Dion moves from the balcony down to the altar, the power grows as more and more people join her in drumming and chanting. The sound resonates throughout my whole being as I feel our returning to the mother of us all. I feel her power to bring transformation to each of us individually and to our world. So uh, Dr. Jan Aldridge Clanton here is describing a worship service with chanting and drums where she felt in her whole being that they were returning to the mother of us all. Hmm. Y'all have any passages in the Bible that talk about returning to the mother of us all? Anywhere in Scripture where God is referred to as a she? Now, I I, I understand that uh, there are she gods mentioned in Scripture, but every one of them is a false god. Um, You know, for instance, Asherah, you know. Anyway, so... Let me continue with the summary here. The Divine Feminine shines forth in all her glory throughout the 5th Annual Faith and Feminism Womanist Mujerista Conference. She comes to me through stories, art, PowerPoint presentations, movement, music, drumming, hospitality, advocacy, liturgy, homily, and on the first evening, keynote speakers Max Dashu and Dr. Jeanette Rodriguez tell their comparing, uh, compelling personal stories with warmth and grace. Behind them rises the altar. <laughs> when you hear something like this, you're going, were they sacrificing people on that thing? Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, because this doesn't sound anything like Christianity. This sounds like, well, female paganism. Anyway, so behind them rises the altar adorned with flowers of many colors and with multicultural female divine images. Above the altar reigns a beautiful, bright, divine feminine painting by... Shiloh Sophia McLeod, who has many other paintings on exhibit during the weekend. The Divine Feminine comes not only through the stories of Max and Jeanette, but through other stories shared over meals and in workshops, and with Lana Dahlberg and Dr. Mary Ann Beavis, who do interviews for their exciting book projects. Dr. Jeanette Rodriguez gives presentations on the Divine Feminine Image of Guadalupe, and Max Dashu presents goddesses from many cultures of the Americas. These keynote speakers impress me not only by the extent of their knowledge and research, but also by the depth of their experience of the divine feminine and their invitation to us all to experience her. 
The pictures that Jeanette shows of Guadalupe and that Max shows of goddesses increase my longing for the divine feminine to be worshipped more widely all over the world because I know her power to heal and to bring peace and justice. And I feel encouraged that her influence is growing as I experience Dr. Mary Streifert's erudite and engaging presentation that includes, listen to this, Dr. Mary Streifert's erudite and engaging presentation that includes female images of Jesus Christ, providing a bridge for feminism to move into traditional Christianity. And all of you should be going, with the what? Yeah, see at the Her Church Conference, the um, Faith Feminist, Feminism Womanist Majorista Conference of 2011. Not only was ISIS, uh, an ISIS priestess in uh, in attendance, so was a woman, Dr. Mary Streifert, um, whom I believe is actually an official who works for the ELCA um, headquarters. Um an engaging presentation that includes female images of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has basically been emasculated. And Jesus the transvestite. And see, here's the problem. And I've pointed this out to feminist theologians in the past, and it's not an argument that's well received. But here it goes. Scripture tells us on the eighth day after Jesus was born, he was circumcised. Jesus wasn't a female. In fact, quite the opposite. So, Dr. Mary Streifert's erudite and engaging presentation that included female images of Jesus Christ is flat-out blasphemy. You see, the God that we're going to deal with, the one who will, on the last day, have every knee bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, is not a woman. He's a man. Circumcised man. Plumbing and all. So, I mean, this is just flat-out blasphemy. Flat-out blasphemy. And why are they doing all this? Because they want to bridge feminism and to move it into traditional Christianity. And if you think these are just a bunch of nut quackpots, quackpots, crackpots, who um, you know who have their own uh, weird, bizarre agenda that won't be engaged in you know in you know any churches nearby or it, near you, think again. These folks are just on the far edge of emergent liberalism. But if, you you know, if emergent concepts, postmodern Christianity, that's in the mainstream of many of America's evangelical churches now. And what you're hearing happening here at her church, just give it time. Just give it a little bit of time, and we'll be hearing stories like this coming out of prominent megachurches. I'd be willing to bet money on it. Moving along. 
From the Express in the UK, we got a story here entitled Beware of the Tattoo Preacher. All right, this was written by James Murray and Adam Smith, and you can find this at express.co.uk, express.co.uk in their search box. Just type in Beware of the Tattoo Preacher. Here we go. Uh, A Tory member of Parliament has warned Britons to be wary of claims made by a Canadian preacher who says he can cure cancer and raise the dead. Thousands have been flocking to hear tattooed former Hell's Angel Todd Bentley speak at a church in uh, Cumbran in South Wales where he is holding revivalist meetings until Thursday. Last Thursday night, he told his audience that he had brought 33 people back from the dead and cured more than 100 deaf mutes of their handicap. Tory member of Parliament, David Davies, whose Monmouth constituency covers part of Cumbran, said, I go to church and respect Christian beliefs, but I'm concerned that some of the claims made by Mr. Bentley are far-fetched and should be treated cautiously. (laughs) That's an understatement. Evangelist, boy, do I use that word loosely here. Evangelist Bentley, who's 35, says he has had a miraculous conversion, which saved him from youth prisons, Drugs, sex, satanic music, and bondage. Yeah, but it hasn't saved him from heresy and from being a charlatan. Anyway, he told his audience, quote, In 13 years of preaching, we have had 33 stories of resurrections from the dead, 20 of them medically verified. Really? Um, yeah, could we see the 20 medically verified verifications of the uh, resurrections from the dead? N- no, you couldn't. Because I remember when Todd Bentley was down in Florida doing his road show down there, and everyone was talking about the great outbreak of the Holy Spirit and miracles by Todd Bentley. And it was all broadcast on God TV and all the claims that he was making. He even got national media coverage. And when the media tried to get a hold of the medical verifications for the miracles that he claimed were taking place, they got a binder full of nothing. Yeah, so um, yeah, anybody can make a claim like this. It's a whole other thing to produce the verification. And here's the deal. Even if Todd Bentley were able to produce verification that somehow a miracle had taken place, it doesn't actually verify his message. His message has to be verified against the word of God, and he is a slick and heretical Bible teacher who teaches a false gospel. He's not to be listened to. He's a he's a charlatan. He's a snake oil salesman. He's one of those guys back if he were alive during the Midwest, he'd have a he'd have a wagon. He would be Dr. Bentley selling his miracle cure tonic, guaranteed to, you know, cure liver ailments and 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 restore hair, you know, things like that. That's what this guy is. Yeah, he's a graduate of the King and the Duke University, by the way. If you're not sure what I'm referring to, please see uh the book um Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Anyway, quote, everywhere we go, we get testimony from someone 
who has been close to death, had stage four cancer or some incurable terminal condition and received a miracle. Quote, there would be nights where 30 people would get out of wheelchairs. Incredible miracles. Thousands of people would be saved every day. I prayed for 139 deaf mutes, and we had 139 deaf mute people hear and speak for the first time. Some people say miracles are not possible, but for me, it's impossible that someone is not healed. Oh wow! Just send in your money. Yeah, this is a this is a miracle roadshow. You know, by the way, this reminds me of a, a recent article I read in the Indianapolis Star. Yeah, let me read this one to you. Uh, it's kind of closely related. Miracle seekers flock to church in New Mexico. Yeah, okay. This was by Russell Contre- uh, Contreras of the Associated Press. The uh, dateline is uh, Chimayo, New Mexico. They come in pain and in prayer seeking cures in a cup of sand from a tiny adobe church. For two centuries, Hispanic and Native American pilgrims have sought help from El Santuario de Chimayo, located in a mountain hamlet in uh, northern New Mexico. They clutch pictures of sick loved ones, hobble weakly on crutches, and they bring stories of hopeless conditions. They leave small slips of paper asking for mercy and miracles, promise to give up drinking and show more compassion. You know, people trying to buy miracles from God by promising to be good. That's not going to work. Anyway, uh, give up uh, give up drinking, show more compassion, and they light candles in front of images of saints. And, uh, and La Virgen de Guadalupe, patron of the Americas, and before they leave, they visit a room in the shrine that houses El Poquito, uh, which means the little well, a small pit of holy adobe-colored dirt, which some say possesses the power to cure just one touch, say those who believe, and cancer might go into remission, an injured knee might heal, and leukemia might be held off long enough to witness a child's birth. Along the wall hang crutches that are no longer needed, material proof from those who say they've been helped. People discover that there's something special here. When they come, and with an open heart and mind, said the Reverend Jim Suntum, a priest of Chimayo, there's a kind of peace that's available here that you can't find anywhere else. Chimayo is a national historic landmark described in the landmark citation as a well-preserved, unrestored example of a small adobe church notable for its superb religious paintings. About 200,000 people are estimated to visit each year. The Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Santa Fe says Chimayo has been called the Lourdes of America. And the history of El Paquito goes back 200 years when legend holds that a friar performing penances saw a strange light streaming from a hillside near the Santa Cruz River. The friar began to dig and to find the source of the light and soon uncovered a crucifix. The crucifix was taken to a nearby church several times, but according to the story, kept mysteriously returning to the place where it was found. A chapel was built there in 1813, and followers have been returning to pray at El Paquito ever since. They take so many cups of dirt to spread over foreheads, hearts, and knees that Chimayo officials must refill the pit periodically with replacement sand that's been blessed. Visitors can purchase small containers of sand for $3 to take to a sick relative or even order the sand from the Shrine's website. Yeah, don't worry. If you need a miracle, you can either purchase them from Todd Bentley or from this little adobe church in uh, in Chimayo. Yeah. 
the, the what's the sayings? How's the saying go? And there's a sucker born every minute. Yeah, God's miracles aren't for sale, by the way. And God doesn't use ex-bikers like Todd Bentley and his road show. That's all a, a performance. It's one well-orchestrated show designed to, well, not remove sickness from your body, but it's designed to remove dollars from your wallet. Trust me, the Chamayo dirt is much cheaper than what Todd Bentley would steal from you. Anyway, all right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. 
right, we're back. Warning, when I sing along to the music, I sing flat. I just want to warn you about that. <laughs> just a reminder, <laughs> Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, what we're doing, uh, just to let you all know, that everybody who is a member of our crew or has made a contribution in the month of Jan uh, January, December, we will be sending out uh, via email, you'll get a link to this, uh, uh, our own Pirate Christian Radio edition of CFW Walther's The Proper Distinction of Law and Gospel. We are at the very tail end of our edits here. We will be having the ebook available sometimes uh, right before christmas so uh you know if uh, if you contribute to support fighting for the faith our way of saying thank you in the month of december uh, for our crew members and for people who contribute uh we will be giving away an ebook edition of cfw walther's a proper distinction of law and gospel and it'll be both in uh the uh, ibooks ebook uh, edition as well as a kindle version and uh, you'll be able to to uh, choose accordingly how you want to do that. So uh, we're finally able to make that announcement. Okay, so uh, let's move along here. This is our new music for our Circle Maker updates. That's Belinda Carlisle's Circle in the Sand, and I won't tell you that I'm old enough to have remembered when that was playing on the radio when it first came out. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm not that old. Well, I am old, but anyway. <laughs> you know, it just, it, like I said, uh, it frosts me when I listen to uh, terrestrial radio and I hear some DJ make a derogatory statement like, and now here's a great oldie from the 80s, you know, or a classic from you know, the 80s. It's like, <sighs> yeah, it's kind of sad when, uh, you know, they fall under the category of memory hits, you know, or classic hits or, you know, 
What's really weird about this? I I was thinking about this the other day. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, um, I remember, you know, my mom would listen to like 50s and early 60s music. And I thought, "Eh, okay. Um, And here's the weird part. When I was a teenager, 50s music is as old as 80s music is now. That is a frightening thought. Anyway, okay, so that's our music for Circle Maker. We're going to be doing some Circle Maker updates as uh, they as they come available. And I recently listened to uh, uh, Mark Batterson of uh, he's got a church out there in uh, Washington D.C. And we've covered we talked about Mark Batterson before. He's the guy who uh, in a, in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Chase the wild goose and, you know, and primal and things like that. Anyway, he's one of these guys who takes these bizarre, you know, little known Old Testament stories and turns them into an entire thing that you're supposed to do. And he he actually specializes in selling his books by the case so that uh, you can make sure to uh, have everybody in your small group studies at your church, you know, participating in, in the chase, the lion, the circle maker. So the circle maker is the, the, the latest thing coming out, you know, how to draw circles around your you know, biggest prayers and dreams and things like that. Anyway, so Mark Batterson was recently on uh, Moody Radio in Chicago, Illinois, and this was last week. And uh, I'm gonna, we're going to uh, listen to the answer to three different questions regarding uh, his uh, soon-to-be release. I think it comes out tomorrow. I may be wrong, but I, you know, I, it was supposed to come out I think last week, and then it got pushed back, and they were thinking maybe January. And now I think it's coming out this week. But anyway. Um, so he was asked the question, uh, you know, where did this concept come from? What, what's, uh, what, where did you get this idea about the circle maker? And I want you to listen to his answer. Here we go. Yeah. Well, a few years ago, I was reading the the Talmud, this uh, Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, and Mark, I came across a story that I fell in love with. It's a true story. Uh, it's a true legend from the first century BC. Uh, the generation before Jesus, there was a drought in Israel that threatened to destroy that generation. And there was one man, his name was Honey the Circle Maker, and I'll tell you how he got his name in just a second. But he was famous for praying for rain, almost like Elijah the prophet. <gasps> and oh, so okay, the- okay. <clears throat> okay, no, Honey is not like Elijah the prophet. This connection is fallacious. Okay, let me explain to you. Okay, if you go back and you read First Kings and Second Kings, yeah, uh, you know, and you read the story of Elijah, what you're going to find out is during the time of Elijah the prophet, uh, things had gone terribly bad in Israel. They had abandoned worshiping the one true God, and were and the Israelites were steeped in idolatry. The God that they were worshiping was the God Baal, and Baal is supposed to be the uh, the god of the skies, the god of the air, right? And you know, as the story goes, Baal is the you know the ancient deity who's supposed to be who's supposed to bring the rain. And so there was a showdown between Yahweh, the uh, the one true god, and Baal. And Baal, because he isn't there. Um, got a shellacking, um, it, and I and I mean that in the most powerful cosmic divine way you can talk about. It. I mean, if there was a a cosmic showdown ever, there this was it. And so, 
when God told Elijah that uh, you you know we're going to make it so that it doesn't rain until you say it's going to rain, and so he actually shows up uh, in you know, and tells. The king of Israel, you know, I think it was Ahaz and his wife Jezebel, Jezebel, by the way, and um, which I think means princess of Baal. But anyway, lets them know, listen, you know, there ain't going to be no rain. And then he goes and hides. Okay, literally, you know, he becomes a fugitive. It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain because God said that. And this is God's way of punishing the false god Baal whom you are worshiping. Right. And so, you know, at first he he's hanging out in this, you know, near a brook and God's sending ravens to send him food and eventually the brook dries up and that's when God sends him uh, you know, to the uh, the widow of Zarephath. Yeah, so yeah, up in Sidon. So, I mean, that's how the story goes. So, it's not that there was just you know, just a generic drought, you know, that the uh, people of Israel were somehow, um, you know, in trouble because there was a famine that just kind of crept up on them. And nothing of the sort. This was a, a famine that was caused as a result of God's judgment on the people of Israel. And when it, when Elijah finally prayed, it was after the whole showdown at the at Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. So comparing Honi, the circle maker, a guy who's mentioned in the Talmud and the Mishnah, and somehow comparing him to Elijah, that is a huge stretch. And in fact, really, it stretches the bonds of credulity, if you would. But uh, let's continue with Mark Batterson's explanation about Honey, the circle maker. The people asked him to pray, and here's what he did. He took his staff, and he drew a circle in the sand. Circle in the sand. So that he was standing inside that circle, then he knelt down and he prayed this prayer. So he was Tebowing. Sorry, I just <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that one coming, did you? Hey, hang on a second, let me back the audio. <laughs> yeah, Honey was Tebowing. Anyway, then he knelt down and he prayed this prayer: Sovereign Lord, I swear before your great name that I will not leave this circle until you have mercy upon your children. And it started to rain. Yeah, no, that's not how the story goes. It, it just started to drizzle. I mean, it was spitting. It was going like that. And and Honey got mad at God. Said, "No, I want rain." Yeah. So and he, you know, so let, let's kind of make sure we got the story right. As it, it appears in the Talmud and the Mishnah, Honey draws a circle in the sand and says, "I'm not leaving the circle, God, till you make it rain." And then it spits. So he draws a circle and demands things from God. Hmm. Yeah. Um. By the way, just want to remind you all, the story of Honey does not appear anywhere in the Old or New Testament. It appears in the Talmud. So, yeah, it's true that Honey was a historical person, but um, it's highly doubtful that... All of the information that we have regarding Honey and his spiritual exploits are actually historical themselves. They have a, uh, the, let's say, how you put this, they have a ring of a mythology that has been formed around him. And this is not how Christ tells us to pray, by the way. Jesus nowhere says to draw a circle in the sand and demand things from God. Okay? Yeah, Honey no, wasn't acting on a 
promise from God at all. And uh, here's the amazing thing, Mark. The, the Sanhedrin actually threatened to excommunicate Honey because they felt like the prayer was too bold. But you can't argue with a miracle. And so he ended up being honored for a prayer that saved a generation. And so really, this is a book about the power of a single prayer and uh, and this idea of praying. Whoa, 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 whoa. The power of a single prayer. Wrong emphasis. Where's the power in your prayer? Mm, is it you? Or is it God? Is this Shouldn't this more really be like the power of our God to save and hear and care for us? And the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is... In a, in a very real way, rebuking the unbelief and lack of faith of the Israelites of his day. He's talking about, and why do you worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear? Do not the, Doesn't the world chase after these things? Yet your Father in heaven knows that you need these things. Look at the field and the flowers of the field that are here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire. Look at the way that God feeds the sparrows. They neither sow nor reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much are you not worth much more than a sparrow? Jesus doesn't sit there and say, Oh, and here's the power of prayer. He says, no, look to your kind, loving, merciful Father in heaven. And he teaches them to pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. You'll notice that Jesus in the Lord's prayer, when he teaches us to pray, he teaches us the exact opposite mindset that Honey had. Honey drew a circle and demanded things from God. Jesus says, know that you have a loving, caring Father in heaven, and when you pray, pray. Say, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, not my will be done. I'm going to sit here in this circle until you act. Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, teaches us the exact opposite way to pray. And he teaches us that the power is not in our prayers, but in our heavenly Father who is in heaven, who hears our prayers and loves and cares for us and knows our needs. The power is God, not us, our prayers, our demanding, our circling, or anything of the sort. So Batterson here isn't teaching us a biblical way to pray. In fact, the attitude, posture, assumptions, everything behind this is the opposite of what Jesus taught when he taught us to pray. We continue. Praying circles, which uh, we have a little bit of experience with uh, here in Washington, D.C. Okay, so next thing, uh, the next question was... Um, it, 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 the, the guy asked him, is God more interactive in the Old Testament than he is today? So listen to this answer. Well, I tell you what, I I stake claim to that wonderful promise mm. that says no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes 
in Christ. And so I, I think we whoa, need whoa, to— Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second here. That's not what the text says. Hey, I want to point this out. This is a one of the one of this is a passage that gets mistaught constantly. So let me let me back up the audio. Here's the question: Is God more interactive in the Old Testament than today? Listen to the question. And by the way, if you want to open up your Bible, open it so that you can see the text that I'm going to take a look at. It is Second Corinthians chapter one. And I think we're, it's about verse 20. Um, yes, here it is. Okay, so yes, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. This is a passage that often gets misquoted and mistaught. And watch what he does here. Well, I tell you what, I, I stake claim to that wonderful promise mm. that says no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so I, I think... I stake claim to that wonderful promise in Scripture that all the promises are yes in Christ. I stake claim. I, you know what this? You know that's I stake claim. You know what that reminds me of? I claim this planet in the name of the Earth. I claim this planet in the name of Mars. Ooh, isn't that lovely? Mm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, this is Marvin the Martian theology. Uh, this isn't biblical prayer. Uh, listen again. Uh, it, 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 this is the same thing as Daffy Duck and Marvin the Martian uh, claiming things. H- here we go. Well, I tell you what, I I stake claim to that wonderful promise mm. that says no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so I I think All we right, need to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, he claims that planet. Uh, the, he, I claim this promise in the name of Earth, you know. I claim this promise in the name of Mars. Okay, yeah, let's take a look at that passage, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, our three rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. So let's take a look at the context here. We'll do that by looking at uh, verse 15. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. I Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Well, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Aha, uh-huh. so there's no claiming this promise in the name of Mars or anything else going on here. Paul here is talking about vacillating between opposing opinions. Uh, yes, no, this is contradictory thinking. And so he's pointing out the fact that in Jesus Christ, that I mentioned in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes, and it is God who establishes us. Who is it? 
God does, not our staking our claim for a particular promise and claiming that promise in the name of Mars or anything of the sort. It's anyway. So I just I just point that out because, well, he's not teaching sound biblical theology here, but uh, regarding prayer. But let's continue. So I'm going to back this up so we can hear it all in context. Well, I tell you what, I I stake claim to that wonderful promise Mm. that says no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so I, I think we need to we need to pray those promises into existence and. So we need to pray those promises into existence. I'm going to beat my head against something here. Um, okay, no, yeah, sorry. The Bible doesn't say that we need to pray promises into existence. You will search long and hard in the Bible to find a passage that says, we pray God's promises into existence. Who's the emphasis on in that sentence? It's on you. Who is the one who answers your prayers? You do. That's the problem. You do not answer your prayers. God answers them, and he's the one who established them, and he's sovereign, and he gets to say no when he wants to because he's God, and you're not. Duh. So here's what happened, Mark. I, I didn't even know about that legend. Uh, 15 years ago when no, I... No, no, listen to the story. Personal experience now. I felt like God impressed upon me to do a 4.7-mile prayer walk around Capitol Hill. <gasps> oh, no, it's Mark Batterson, the circle walker. Now, I know you're here every... <laughs> Maybe we should call him that, you know, there's Luke Skywalker and there's Mark Circle Walker. Do you think Luke Skywalker and Mark Circle Walker are somehow related? every year so you can kind of visualize that mm-hmm, yep. and uh it took about three hours for me to pray around that perimeter uh we now own four pieces of property one of them in eight million no see it's the power of circle walking you see because he did it and he claimed it he prayed those promises into existence and now they own property inside the circle by the way, the uh, logical fallacy that's being employed here is known as post hoc ergo um, propter hoc, by the way, which means after this, therefore, because of this. However, I often refer to it as post hoc ergo poppycock. Yeah, it's, this is a logical fallacy. See, this is an, an appeal to his own personal experience, post hoc ergo propter hoc, ergo poppycock, that somehow proves, you see, you want proof that circle maker prayers work? Well, I did a circle walk, and now look what happened. Ta-da! We own million-dollar properties inside of the circle because I did that. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. That perimeter, uh, we now own four pieces of property, one of them an $8 million piece of property that we own debt-free, hmm. uh, a theater right on Main Street of Capitol Hill. Gasp. And, of course, Ebenezer's Coffee House, where we have shared a cup of coffee. All of those properties, Mark, are right on that prayer route. And no, you don't say. So I, I just believe in the power of circling things in prayer. Now, if I believe in the power of circling things in prayer, even though the Bible never says any of that. Um, uh, I, you know, here's the deal. I believe in God, the father almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, and I believe that Jesus taught us to pray our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
And God is the one who answers prayer. This, the reason why this is wrong, aside from the fact that it's eerily like uh, Wiccan circle casting and, and you know pagan witchcraft circle casting, the similarities are just a little too creepy for me. But uh, the other thing that's really wrong with this is that the emphasis is all on you. It's not on God. Hey, God, look, I drew a circle. I went on a circle walk. So I believe in the power of my prayer. You better answer my prayer. Look, I drew a circle. Well, so what? I drew a square once. Sometimes I've been known to draw triangles. And if if I'm feeling really frisky when I'm doodling, I make spirals. Yeah, I'm a spiral maker. That's how powerful I am. Not a magic formula. It's not about physically uh, circling all the time. But when you come to a promise of God in Scripture, you know what? I actually circle those promises in my Bible. No, uh, really. I'm sure out of context, too. I, I circle my kids with prayers. And so... Everything circles. He's seeing circles in the sand. Literally or figuratively, it's this idea of let's pray around the problems. Let's pray around the dreams. And if we keep praying, listen, we might see God do a miracle. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. God, the afterthought in your prayer. You, the circle maker, the powerful. And like I said, I, I make spirals. That's how, how cutting edge I am. All right. Uh, real quick here. I've got one more thing that I really do want to cover before we go into the break, because I thought it would be a good story to kind of... Uh, well, end the first hour with as we go into our really awful, terrible, the worst Christmas sermon I've ever heard in my life. So let me cue this up dun, 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 dun. from the Christian Post. The headline reads, most popular Christmas films leave Christ out. This is written by breathecast.com. <laughs> What's a breathe cast? Oh, man. Why is it showing up at Christian Post? Anyway, some people feel Christmas just isn't Christmas without Christ, but apparently not many. If one were to rank the importance of Christ in Christmas based on popular Christmas films, sadly, it would rank very low as the top 10 grossing Christmas films reveal. It may be hard to find a movie depicting the true meaning of Christmas as romance and Santa Claus have dominated the big screens for the past decade. So according according to a list of the 10 highest grossing Christmas films of all time compiled by Yahoo News, none of the films has a Christ-centered theme. So these highly profitable films are listed below. And um, yeah, so let me read them from the, you know, from 10 all the way up to one. This would be like, you know, David Letterman, you know, top 10 list. So uh, number 10 would be Christmas with the Cranks. I, I haven't seen that. Okay. Um, so uh, number nine, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Got it. Okay. Number eight, The Santa Claus 3, Escape, The Escape Clause, the seventh most all-time favorite grossing um Christmas movie of all time is Four Christmases. I haven't seen that either. Anyway, next is uh, the night, uh, the 2009 version of A Christmas Carol. The number five is The Santa Claus 2. Uh, number four is uh, Santa Claus, the original. That was from 1994. The third most popular is Elf. Second, 
the uh, Polar Express, and then the first is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Um, yeah, are there any? There, there's like no Christ in any of those Christmas films, huh? Okay, so well, there you go. I mean, you know, Christ out of Christmas are you know, so you know, based on popular culture and movie taste. Uh, Jesus is nowhere to be seen, but see, that's kind of the point here that I'm going to be making in our next um, segment, uh, the the sermon review coming up in just a couple of minutes, and uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon from uh, from a potential church, and yeah, this it's called Christmas Paradox, and here's the deal: this is a sermon designed to basically. Um, dig Jesus out of the Christmas story and put you into it. I Yeah, that's the only way I can describe it, and you're not going to want to miss it. So we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, fighting for the faith. Brace yourselves for probably the worst Christmas sermon you will ever hear. I mean, this is like the Christmas hijack sermon. It's that bad. We're going to hijack the baby Jesus and we're going to put you in his place. Yeah, I'm not joking. Bendy straws, padding, and duct tape are uh, highly recommended. Here we go.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Potential Church. I think this is out of their Miami, Florida campus, but they have multi-sites all over Florida and the Bahamas, I think. And Lima, Peru, of all places. But um, Potential Church isn't really a church yet. They're just a church in Potentia, and I think this is going to set them back from actually ever achieving full church status. But uh, the uh, person uh, preaching this message is um, Troy Gramling. He's the Fuhrer, Fuhrer of um, Potential Church. Um, Fuhrer is the uh, German word for leader. He's n- not a pastor. No way. A, a true pastor, somebody who shepherds God's sheep, feeds people on God's word and points them to Christ. The name of the sermon, by the way, is Christmas Paradox, What's Turning uh, Turning What's Upside Down, Right Side Up. That's the name of the sermon. And this is uh, the first week in the sermon series about the Christmas Paradox. And, you know, I can't even really describe ahead of time what goes wrong with this sermon. You're just going to have to experience uh, for yourself what goes wrong. Um, so to prevent jaw injuries, I strongly recommend go grabbing your uh, your high schooler's football helmet and put the chin strap on. If you don't have that, grab your, your, your son or daughter's bicycle helmet. I know it's kind of odd to tell you to wear a helmet while listening to this edition of Fighting for the Faith. But believe me when I tell you, it's probably safer that way because head injuries are possible while listening to this sermon. Jaw injuries are, um, you know... For sure, uh, a very real danger. And if you're driving, you may want to pull over because this sermon is so bad it could cause you to steer off the road and literally fly off a cliff and have your life come to a gruesome, flaming end. So just want to let you all know that. So without any further ado, here's Troy Grambling. Just remember, I warned you, uh, Christmas Paradox, what turning what's upside down right side up. Here we go. Wow. It is great to see you guys. We are glad you are here as we talk about the paradox, the upside down Christmas, how to make it right side, right side up. Man, the volunteers did a great job, right? You guys ready for Christmas? And we have a, uh, let's see, how did they, they tied that up? I was going to. Now, just so you know, they have kind of like a living nativity thing on stage, and there's barnyard animals. And so he's grabbing a goat that's uh, tied up to one of the posts, and he's going to bring him out on stage. Turn Sheila loose. They tied Sheila up too, uh, too tight. I'll let you meet Fred if he'll come out here. All right. Come on, Fred. You want to come on out here? See the... Can you guys say hi to Fred? Come on, Fred. Come on. It's okay. Well, Fred doesn't like you. Okay, I want to talk though a little bit about about Christmas, right? How many of you have a manger or a nativity set you set up at Christmas time? And, and when you do, you're really more worried about breaking it and and all, because it's beautiful. I mean, some of them are just amazingly beautiful. Um, but the truth is, is the real one wasn't so beautiful. Instead, it was just just the opposite. Instead of something that was beautiful, it was really something that was kind of stinky. You know, something you had to be careful where you walked and where you stepped, or you could get more than you anticipated. I mean, it, it, a whole. It, it's actually quite a paradox when you think 
that a king was born in a manger. Because right, where would kings normally be born? They'd normally be born in a palace, but Jesus, the king, let's see if we can get Fred back up here. Come on, Fred. Okay, now I stop here. Um, I'm not going to get into the historicity of this understanding that's come down to us regarding the manger and the and the homes in Bethlehem. It it's kind of based on a, on a faulty understanding of of how things are, but that's a completely different story. Um, this is so far so good. This is kind of the typical Christmas fair. Jesus, you know, born at lowly, humble means. Okay, not born in a palace, but born in a place where he was laid in a manger. Okay, that no problem there so far. It's going to jump the tracks really quickly here, and I just, I, you know, listen. I don't even know if I have the ability to warn you for what, what's going to happen. So you just gotta brace yourself and be ready at all times. Let's continue. Come on, say bye bye. All right, just a little further, Fred. All right, Fred. There we go. A king that was born in the manger. I, I want to talk about that paradox. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And she, she being Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and she placed him in a what? She placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. Kings aren't supposed to be born. I mean, kings are supposed to be born in a palace, not in a manger. Especially when you think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you got Moses. He's this great, you know, spiritual leader, takes the people of God out of bondage. And Moses, Moses wasn't born or grow up in a manger. Moses, Moses grew up in the palace. You got Adam and Eve, the first, you know, God made Adam and Eve. And you could kind of say that they grew up not in a manger, but they grew up in Eden, the most beautiful place that was ever created. Kings, you know, kings are supposed to be born in a palace, not in a, not in a manger. Do, do you ever feel the Christmas paradox in your own life? Do you ever feel like your life looks more like a manger? <laughs> there was the jump right there. <laughs> do you ever feel the Christmas paradox in your own life? That was the transition question. All of a sudden, we're hijacking the Christmas story and somehow allegorizing it so that we can wedge and literally eisegete, that means to read into the story, your life. Yeah, let me just back this up a smidge because I want you to hear the critical question where this whole thing jumps the tracks and becomes the worst Christmas sermon of all time. Backing it up just a smidge. Here we go. Danger, but they grew up in Eden the most beautiful place that was ever created. Kings, you know, kings are supposed to be born in a palace, not in a, not in a manger. Do, do you ever feel the Christmas paradox in your own life? Do you ever feel like your life looks more like a manger than it does a palace? Hmm, yeah. Are you saying that my life really should be a palace? And maybe I'm at the manger stage of my life. Hmm. It's kind of manger-esque. I mean, you know, you, it's a little bit stinky. It's, it's, you got to be careful of where you step because of all the different messes maybe you've made in your life. I mean, on the end... You know, seriously, the Christmas story is not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus was literally historically laid to rest. The baby Jesus was laid to rest in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. This isn't about me. 
It's about what Jesus did. That's his life, not mine. Inside, you know you were created for more. On the inside, you've got this... Oh, no, 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 no. He did not just say that. Hang on a second. I got to back the audio up just a smidge again because, it, I mean, this is unbelievable. It's more like a manger than it does a palace. It's kind of manger-esque. I mean, you know, you, it's a little bit stinky. It's, it's, you got to be careful of where you step because of all the different messes maybe you've made in your life. I mean, on the inside, you know you were created for more. On the inside, you've got this dream or you've got this destiny. You, you, you've got this business that you want to start or, or you dream about having like this kind of relationship. I mean, on the inside, you know you were meant for more. You come to church and we talk about how... On the inside, you know you were meant for more. So if your life is mangery right now, mangerish. Is is that even a word? If your life is mangerish, you just know that it's meant for more. And you can look at Jesus's life and go, oh, yes, Jesus had a manger season in his life, too. And now he reigns in heaven and he's the king. So that means I, if I'm going through a mangerish time in my life, that I, too, will ascend into heaven and I will be king. You are God's masterpiece, and we talk about how you were created to do something of significance, that, that God has a purpose and he has a destiny for you. But on the inside, you've got that, but you're living in a manger. I mean, where you or what you feel on the inside seems so far away from where you're actually, where you're actually living. Mm -hmm. So somehow this text is about me. Luke, who knew, you know, that Luke 2 was about me. I just... Every time I read the story, I just have the hardest time seeing me in the story. But Troy Gramling is now teaching the folks there at Potential Church. They're not really a church, though. They're just a church in Potentia. Teaching them how to see themselves in the Luke story. Amazing. A manger. Jesus wasn't born in a palace. Instead, it was a barn. You ever feel like that? Nobody knows your name. You get up and you go to work. D do I ever feel like that? Nobody knows my name. You know, look at poor Jesus. Nobody knew his name either. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Unbelievable. And you're underemployed. There's so much more that you think you could do, but nobody, nobody knows what you can really do. Nobody knows how you could really perform. They don't know you. Yeah, because I'm just like God in human flesh. Your name they don't want to know your name they don't know where you come from they don't know what you've been through I mean you ever feel you ever feel like you're living in a manger and you know it's funny that you would ask that question I do distinctly remember you know when I was a kid and um, you know being a normal you know warm-blooded American boy um, from time to time I didn't clean my room and my mom she would come into my room and observe the mess and she would say things like, were you born in a barn? Clean up this pigsty. You know, things like that. Um, is that what you mean? And there's this question. When you live in a manger, it's like, how do I change the world from here? <laughs> when you live in, the main, uh, live in a manger, how do you change the world from here? <sighs> Second Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul prophesying about the end times says this. Understand this, that in the last days there will come 
difficult times. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Yeah, it also goes on to say that these are people who are always learning and never being able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Among them are those who creep into household, capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. Folks, if this isn't the worst example of a love-yourself sermon, we're hijacking the biblical text so that we can allegorize it. Who cares if Troy Grambling believes that Jesus was really born of the Virgin Mary? You're missing the whole point of the text. This story's about you. Yeah, look at, I mean... Do you ever feel like you're at a manger point in your life? You know, nobody knows your name. Nobody knows what you can do. Poor Jesus. I mean, that's what the Christmas story is all about. There's Jesus. I mean, sidelined in a, in a manger. And nobody knows his name. Nobody knows what he can do. Poor baby Jesus in the manger phase of his life. Are you having the manger phase of your life? I'm going to lose it. <laughs> Sorry. We continue. You know, how do I ever have the kind of relationship I want to have when I'm living in a manger? How do I ever, you know, have the kind of business I want when I'm financially in a manger? Jesus came that first Christmas morning and his life didn't begin in a palace. It began in a barn. It's a great paradox. For the first 30 years, you could actually think that we don't hear a lot about Jesus in the scripture, do we? I mean, there's a story about the temple, but there's really not a lot about Jesus. I put it, if you want to pull out that out. Yeah, but then again, Jesus made it clear that the entire Old Testament's about him. So really, from beginning to end, the whole story's really about Jesus. Outline you got when you came in? I, I put this there if you want to write it down. Jesus spent 30 years in a manger for three years of ministry. Because mm. I know some of us are tired. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Who cares? Of the manger. You know, some of us are ready to move on. We're ready. So some of us are tired with the main. Jesus didn't spend 30 years in the manger, Troy. To go to that next step. We're ready for the palace, baby. We're ready to, to live our destiny. Jesus. We're ready for the palace, baby. We're ready to live our destiny, baby. This is narcissistic Jesus. Jesus spent 30 years in a barn so that he could do three years of ministry. Mm -hmm. Let's back that up again and kind of test that out. Hold on a second here. Um, let's see if he's accurately handling the biblical text. Ready to, to live our destiny. Uh -huh. Jesus spent 30 years in a barn. Really? Jesus spent 30 years in a barn. Yeah, poor guy never was able to leave. I mean, he was just sidelined. Jesus spent 30 years in a barn. Uh-huh. Apparently, he never got out of there and spent time with his father in his carpenter shop. No, he was stuck in a barn for 30 years. So that he could do three years of ministry. Even when Jesus started his ministry, 
You know, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Jesus was almost 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Yeah, because he spent 30, I mean, he was almost 30 years when he started his public ministry. But then again, yeah, we all know he was in a barn for those first 30 years. So there was these 30 years, John 1 and verse 46, when Jesus actually started his public ministry and he kind of started recruiting disciples. Nathaniel is one of those he tried to recruit. And Nathaniel knew that Jesus came from Nazareth. And he said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Especially from their barns. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? In John chapter 1 and verse 10. It says, he, Jesus, came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Yeah, that's because he was wearing like, a, you know, those funny Groucho Marx glasses with a fuzzy mustache. No one could recognize him. You know, that's what happens when you spend 30 years in a barn. When Jesus walked around and he saw all the things that he had created, but when he saw the people that he created, they didn't even know who he was. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus... Yeah, just like you, because, I mean, when you do you walk around and feel like nobody knows who you are and they don't know your potential yet? ...went home, and it says that next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many heard him, and they were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom? Right, because he's been in a barn for 30 years. ...and the power to do such marvelous miracles. But It's hard to get power like that when you've been locked up in a barn for 30 years. Then they scoffed. Well, he's, he's just a carpenter. He's the son of Mary. He's the brother of James. And his sisters, well, they live right here with us. You know, when John the Baptist, this great prophet in the New Testament, when John the pra Baptist proclaimed as he was baptizing one day, because John had a whole lot of followers. And yeah, I mean, John was practically a megachurch pastor just like you. Jesus kind of walked up on the shore and John now, it see that's the thing you know see it, if Twitter was around back then John the Baptist had like 50,000 followers on Twitter and like Jesus only had like 40 and said behold the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world see that's like retweeting right there you know to try to you know help people you know he said it with that great power and everybody's kind of like who yeah who yeah I, i'm not following him on twitter who is, who is, who's he talking about? We haven't seen him. He looks like he just came out of a barn and like he's been in there for 30 years. That, that's the Messiah. Nobody knew who Jesus was. You, you ever feel like that? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I am going to freak out. You're right. So he takes all these verses out of context, makes it sound like, you know, Jesus was just suffering from pure obscurity, you know. And do you ever feel like nobody knows who you are, too? Don't worry, you're going to be famous just like Jesus. All you got to do is get past your barn phase. I mean, nobody knows who you are. When I was in Arkansas, I was an interim pastor for a church in Black Oak. Black Oak has a giant population of about 15 people, and, and I would go, and I would speak there every weekend. Well, one weekend I couldn't go, and so I asked one of my buddies by the name of Tommy Ezel if he would go and, and teach for me that weekend. He said, sure, no problem. What he forgot was exactly how far it took to get there, or how long. It was about an hour drive. He left too late. And so sure enough, he got there, he was late, the service had already started. I mean, many of you know exactly what that feels like. And so he comes in, 
And uh, he, he runs up to the front of this ch church. He sits down right there in the front seat and music has started. He's nervous, you know. And as soon as the last song is finished, he jumps up, he gets behind the podium and he just starts to apologize. I'm so sorry. Man, I didn't realize it was going to take so long to get here. I, man, I, I should have planned better. He just, I'm, I'm sorry. And about that time, a leader stood up and asked the question, who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm Tommy Ezel. Uh, Pastor Troy asked me to come and speak on his behalf. He, he couldn't be here. And that same gentleman said, well, who is Pastor Troy? <laughs> My friend Tommy had went to the wrong church. <clears throat> You ever feel like you're at the wrong church? You ever feel like that in life, you just have shown up at the wrong place and people are like, who are you? What, what do you do? Well, if they feel like they've shown up at the wrong church, potential church, they're not even a real church yet. They're just a church in potential. And a, this sermon is going to set them way back. It's going to be a long time before they ever achieve real church status. Um, and it looks like they're not going to be able to achieve real church status under Troy Grambling because now all of a sudden you ever feel like people just don't know who you are? Don't worry. You can be famous like Jesus because that's what Jesus's life is all about. He went through the barn phase, which took 30 years. He was in 30 years in a barn, but then three years of ministry and boy, he just took off like a rocket and now he's a king and see, you're going to be just like that. Doing, and you just kind of feel feel behind, like you're not making any progress. If this Christmas, you and I are really going to turn what's upside down, right side up, there's about three things we need to do. So, so just do these three things and you, you can get out of your barn phase. Would you jot these down here? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll take copious notes. Here's the first one. As you think about Christmas paradoxes, we don't need to allow our circumstances to determine our destiny. Uh-huh. Yeah, it sounds like Joel Osteen kind of stuff. Don't allow your circumstances to determine your destiny. Uh-huh. You do understand that your sinful condition is going to determine your destiny. If you are still dead in trespasses and sins and you're not repentant and brought to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, yeah, those circumstances will determine your eternal destiny in hell. We can't allow our circumstances to determine our destiny. The fact that we were born in a manger today can't determine where we're going to live tomorrow. This is literally making me angry. Like I can feel my blood pressure rising. This is blasphemous. Because the truth is Jesus loves to do things in secret. Really? You got a verse that says Jesus loves to do things in secret. Why do you think Jesus was born in a manger? He was. Oh, oh I know, because he was trying to hide because he liked to be in secret. That's why he spent 30 years in the barn to be in secret, because he likes to keep things in secret. Doing something behind the scenes. He was doing something that nobody else could see. In Psalm 139, it says, David speaking, he says, you know what, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You watched me as I was being formed in what? What's that next word? Secret. I was being formed in secret. When really, did you go to seminary and learn that Psalm 139 teaches that God likes to do things in secret? I mean, this is just unbelievable. By the way, this sermon is an argument in favor of a, a law being passed requiring the um, the random drug screening.
of all seeker-driven pastors. Nobody else could see what God was doing. God was at work in the womb of David's mother, preparing him for the destiny that was in front of him. Oh, yeah. See, that's what God was doing. God knit together King David in secret because he was preparing him for his destiny. You know what? God made you in secret, too. You know what that means? That God was secretly preparing and knitting you together, too, for your destiny. You're probably going to be bigger than King David. I'm sure he'll he'll pale in comparison to you and your destiny. God loves to do things in secret. Right now, you may feel like your relationship or your finances, you may feel like your main uh, your life is in a manger. Truth is, it's God's doing something in secret. You can't see it right now. The people around you can't see it right now. But God is at work. God is doing something. You- yeah, uh-huh. What if God's, you know, judging them? Look at poor Pharaoh. I mean, you know, God hardened his heart, and look what happened to him. God was preparing him for his destiny. You can't allow where you're at today to determine where you're going to be tomorrow. Because you're great. You're special. You have a great destiny. You are, your future is filled with kingdoms, and you're going to be a king. Christmas story is filled with these kind of examples in um, Luke chapter 1 and verse 28. So the Christmas story is full of these kinds of examples, only if you completely rip them out of context, allegorize them, and then isogetically, narcissistically read yourself into the text. It says the angel went to her, her being Mary, and said, greetings. You who are, read those next two words with me out loud, if you would, at all of our campuses today. What are they? Highly With me again. So now we're going to read Luke chapter 1, the story of Gabriel announcing to Mary. This is the Annunciation. This is Gabriel announcing to the Virgin Mary that she's going to be with child and give birth to a son. And we're just going to rip it out of context and focus on this. <gasps> Did you notice that the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you are highly favored. You see, that's not about Mary. That's about you. Highly favored. The angel comes to Mary and says, you know what, Mary, you're highly favored. That word uh, could be translated accepted. Mary, you're accepted. Now, Mary... Mary was in a manger. I mean, her family wasn't wealthy. Mary didn't live in a big house. They, they weren't well-known in the community. Mary was really she's just a teenager. And yet God... Was she in the manger phase prior to the manger? I'm curious. Okay. ...comes to this teenager and says, Mary, nobody else can see what I'm doing. Nobody else knows what I'm up to. You know what it even says about Mary? Mary says, it says that Mary kept these things in her heart and she pondered them or she she thought about them. Yeah, she was pondering the words how favored she was, you know, because it was all about Mary, you know, because nobody knew her and she was really convinced that, you know, she wasn't quite living up to her potential, you know, she wanted to have her destiny and, hmm, you know what's funny is is that when I read Luke chapter 1, um, I don't read anything about me in there or you in there or anything like that. In fact, let's read the Annunciation story and see what's really going on here. Are you ready? Luke chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month, the Angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Uh, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his in of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh-huh. So the message that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary was about Jesus. It wasn't about her. It was about Jesus. It was about to be what, how God was going to use her, but it was about Jesus. He left all of that stuff out and says, Look, see, God said that Mary was favored, and you know, you are too. Mm, okay, let's continue. Because God loves. He loves to do things in secret. Another great example is, of course, Moses. We mentioned him a few moments ago. You, you remember Moses is, uh, you know, this great... Do, I mean, does any of his retelling of any of the biblical stories regarding any of these characters even remotely sound like what actually happened? If you read the stories, could you... Can you square them with how he's, well, summarizing them? Like, not at all. Great leader. Notice he's leaving all the details out so that he can make this about you. Found in the Old Testament that took people's, uh, God's people out of bondage. Well, at 80 years old, he's already blown it in the palace. He screwed up. And so, as an 80-year-old man, well, let's just read it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 says, one day Moses... Yeah, verse 1. Yes. Oh, yeah, let's just read it. Because then it'll look like a biblical sermon if I just read this verse out of context. ...was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, it's not his sheep. It's his father-in-law's. It's not his daddy's sheep. In other words, these sheep aren't going to be handed down to Moses. It's his father-in-law's sheep. His so this is his manger period. Got it. Okay. His father-in-law's not with him because his father-in-law's important. It says he was a, a priest. And so Moses doesn't have his own flock. And Moses is not going to get this flock. And Moses is, is, is doing the least of things. And look where he's doing it. it. It says, and he led his flock far into the wilderness. Or, or, or you could say, some translations say, the backside of the desert. The least likely place that you think God would be working is exactly where at 80 years old, two-thirds of his life has already passed, is exactly where Moses is. Because God loves. He loves to do things in secret. And you know Yeah, see, oh yeah. Are you on the backside of the desert in your life? Are you still stuck in the barn in the manger? Don't worry, God loves to do things in secret. And what the very next verse says is that God came to Moses in a burning bush. It was on the backside of the desert dealing with somebody else's sheep that God came and did something in Moses' life. J John the Baptist, the prophet we mentioned a few moments ago that said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Look what it says about him in Luke chapter 1. It says, And you, my little son... 
will be called the prophet of the Most High. I mean, it's a big job. He says, you know oh, what? Yeah, and you, my little son, we called the prophet of the Most High. <gasps> wow. Little, little guy, you're going to be a prophet. And you're going to be the prophet, not, you're going to be the prophet of the Most High. And see, this is showing you how God's going to work in your life, too. Because you're going to let people know that the Lord is coming. You're going to prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, there is something out in front of you, John, you're just not going to believe. You've got a destiny. But where is John? Verse 80. It says, John grew up and became strong in spirit. And he lived in where? The wilderness. Right? Do you guys got an outline? Is that verse in there? And you know how to read? All right. Um, I mean, I, I, help me, all right? Help me out. He, he was in the wilderness until he became, uh, until his public ministry. So for several decades, where is John the Baptist? He's in the manger. He's in the manger. God says, I'm going to use you in a big way, but John wasn't in the palace or in a great uh, uh, you know, uh, high school or in a great college. No, no, he's in the manger. He's out in the wilderness because God does things in secret. Yeah, that's, that's why he was in the wilderness. Because God was doing something in secret. Yeah, see? In the secret. And then you go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 6, and it says... Yeah, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Notice not a single verse is being read in context. Why? Because this isn't a biblical sermon. Every little bit is ripped out of context so that you can't actually piece anything, any coherent biblical thoughts together. Instead, this is just makes it possible so, so that we can read you and your life into the Bible, and you can see yourself in there. I mean, listen, if this is what you want to do with the Bible, do us all a favor. Cut the words out and just stick a mirror in the cover so every time you open your Bible, you can look at yourself. Because that's what's really going on here. I mean, what's really funny is is that uh, this parody song that I play from time to time, now it's coming true in this sermon. It's all about me, really. It is all about you. Now the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now I lift my name on high. All 20 songs. All about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. This for only $19.95. Operators are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing. And I am why I live. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. Call 1-800-ME-ME-ME. Or order online at me-myself-and-I.com. All today because no one can praise you like you to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved now what in the world flip on over to ephesians chapter one would you 
Because watch what he's doing here. What does that mean and what does it have to do with what we're talking about? Just a lot of words that sometimes get tangled up in my mind. Yeah, I, I, I always get Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 tangled up in my mind. So let's untangle it, you know, so that we can make it understandable for people. Because you'll find, oh man. <clears throat> you ready? Here's our three rules context, context, and context. So we'll start at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You'll notice that this blessed state, this state of acceptance, if you would, that's mentioned in passing in verse 6, which isn't even a full sentence, hinges on the in Christ thing. How are we in Christ? Well, God chose us in him. He redeemed us through his blood, forgave us of our trespasses. All of that is part of what it means to be in Christ. This isn't some story here about, oh, your great plan, your destiny. Are you in the manger phase of your life? People don't know you. Do you feel obscure? They just don't know what you can do. Don't worry. Don't worry. You see, verse 6 here is telling you that, yeah, you're just like Mary. Yeah, watch what he does with this, because that's where he's going to go. You don't believe me? Watch this. And I wouldn't read it to you except for one word, that word accepted. And that word accepted found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 is the same Greek word that's found in Luke. It's the same word that the angel used for Mary. When the oh, yeah, see, you are just like Mary. <gasps> so now you can read the story of Mary and look at the great things that, oh, yeah. The angel came to Mary and said, Mary, guess what? You are highly favored. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, God says to you and I, you are highly favored. If we're in Christ... You are accepted. You because he died for us and redeemed us by his blood. You, you left that out. You may be living in a manger today, but God has a destiny for you to live out tomorrow. The text doesn't say that. You know what? I, I, this is satanic. It's exactly what this is. Where you're at today is not where you have to be tomorrow. You are highly favored. You are accepted. You, you know what? You are the Virgin Mary. I mean, you've got the you've got the seeds of greatness in your spiritual womb.
I love about the Christmas story is that the Christmas story is a great reminder that kings are born in a manger. Yeah, see, the Christmas story is a great reminder. Kings are born in a manger. So if you're going through a tough time and you're having a manger phase in your life, just look to the Christmas story and realize your time to be a king is coming. That just because today your relationship is not what you want it to be, just because today your finances is not where you want them to be, doesn't mean that God's not going to do something in your life tomorrow. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have that relationship tomorrow. It doesn't mean you're not going to start that business tomorrow. It doesn't mean you're not going to have financial blessing tomorrow. Because kings are born in a manger. Every time we put up a Christmas... This is just horrendous. I mean, it smells like sulfur. Tree. Every time we hang a bulb on that tree, we are reminded that Jesus was not born in a palace. He was born in a manger. Because and you could be just like Jesus. God loves to do things in the secret. And right now you may feel like you're in a manger, but it's because God is doing something that not everybody can see. But I'll promise you this. He's doing something. He's preparing you today for what he wants to do tomorrow. Right. You know, nobody knew who Jesus was. Yeah, this is the literal. This is exactly what it means to scratch itching ears. People abandoning sound doctrine to be told mythologies about themselves, of all things. Yeah, is it any wonder why he's a popular megachurch pastor? <laughs> he ain't preaching the biblical gospel. He's telling you, you're great. Was when he came on the scene. Who is he? He, he, he's just James' brother, his sisters. I mean, they hang out with us at Starbucks. He, he's not anybody important. But 2,000 years later, everybody today knows who Jesus is. And the Bible says that in the... And you know what? 2,000 years from now, probably everyone will know who you are, too. Future, every knee's going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. He was born in a manger, but he's at the right hand of the God today. He's in a palace today. And that's what Christmas is about. That's why I love it. It's so encouraging. Yeah, it's encouraging because it's really all about you. Such a reminder that you can't allow your circumstances, those things that got you down and got you beat up today, keep you from where God wants to take you tomorrow. Now, if we're going to turn what's upside down, right side up here, here's the second thing you might jot down. Is learning, is learn to enjoy where you are on your way to where you're going. Learn to enjoy where you are on your way to where you're going. Now, I uh, shared with you a few weeks ago, you know, I'm doing better with the driving thing. You know, all the, the freeway and the stress, you know, I'm, I'm patient, but I'm still struggling at the airports. And uh, when we went to New York, how many of you here have any kind of like family or friends in New York? <clears throat> like New York, hate New York, any of that kind of stuff. And, you know, we like it. I remember the first time we went to New York and, uh, you know, we're there and we get, have a great time. Well, I mean, there's five in our family and four of the five actually got food poisoning. Uh, I'm the only one that didn't because God loves me the most, but <clears throat> just kidding, just kidding. He, he likes them. But uh, so, so we're getting ready to leave and, and the fog comes in and, you know, they start canceling flights. And so I'm freaking out because I'm like, man, we don't have enough money to stay another night in the hotel. And, and I'm getting stressed. I'm like, Steph, what are we going to do? 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 And, and, and then I look over at my kids 
And they're just kind of laying there on the ground, you know, there in the airport. And they got, they're playing cards. They got their cards out. And, and they got their little, um, I'm not going to tell you the airline, but they were eating blue chips and, and, and got a Coke, you know. And, and they're just having a great time. They were learning to enjoy where they were on the way to where they were going. Now, that was a long time ago. I've taught them better since then, you know. And they get stressed out like they're supposed to when things like that happen, but... Just a reminder, that story is not found in the Bible. It's found in the, the, the story of Troy, Gramlin, but it's not biblical. We got to learn to enjoy where we're at on the way to where, on the way to where we're going. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9. It says, although he... he Hebrews chapter 5 verses 8 and 9, okay. Being Jesus was a son, he learned active and special obedience through what he suffered. I hate that word suffering, don't you? Anytime I read it in the Bible. Oh, yes, because you see Hebrews chapter 5 is about Jesus experiencing the barn phase of his life because he was in it for 30 years, you know. I'm kind of like, ah, you know. But it says that Jesus learned obedience, how? Through suffering. And then it goes on and says, and his completed experience making him perfectly equipped he became the author, the source of eternal salvation to all those who give heed and obey him. And the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering and that in the manger or in the wilderness, he completed experience and he was equipped. You might write those two words down. Mm-hmm. Notice how he's taking Hebrews 5 and trying to weave it into his wilderness, backside of the wilderness, manger experience. Um, Well, let's take a look at it in context. Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He came to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for, for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God calls, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You'll notice here, he wasn't reading from a good translation. He purposely read from a really bad paraphrase in order to obscure the meaning of what's going on here, because here it's talking about how Jesus was our salvation and was obedient to God for our salvation. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
Yeah, so, yeah, um, interesting here. Hebrews 5 mentions nothing about Jesus' um, barn phase. Yeah, but that's how Troy is reworking this text from this bad paraphrase in order to make it sound like, you see, this was the p- pattern that Jesus went through. See, Jesus was in, obs- was in obscurity. He was in the barn phase. But through the suffering in the barn phase, he was able to learn obedience. And then, you see, then that's when he was able to have the breakthrough so that he could become popular and have significance and 2,000 years, people remember him. So if you're going through this phase in your life, it's just like Jesus. Uh, the word experience and the words equipped. You know, it's in the wilderness. It's in the manger where you and I learn experience and equipment. That's where we learn experience and we good equipment. It's where we learn what we need to know and we... Yeah, see, Hebrews 5 is teaching us that in our wilderness and in, in our mangers that's where we learn the experience so we can be equipped for our greatness get what we need to have it's in the manger that we learn what we need to know and we get the skills and the tools that we need to have it just seems like there's something about the manger there, there's something about the wilderness there's nobody that's been used great by god that hasn't spent some time in the manger did you know that there's nobody that's changing this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose it. Really, there's nobody great by God who hasn't been, who hasn't spent time in the manger. Now pound my head against something. Um, do you mean that we were all babies once? World that hasn't lived in the wilderness. There's something that God does in the wilderness. You, you know, it's in the manger that we learn where to step, so that we don't get their poop on us or maybe it's the it's the messes that we make in the manger that we kind of learn where to step and where where not to step right so now we're allegorizing the animal droppings in the manger this is ridiculous there's so much experience to be gained in the manger and yet often we're doing everything we can to get out of the manger it's kind of like if you were to go tomorrow and you were going to have surgery let's say And so, you know, you're in there and they're about to give you, you know, the happy medicine. But before they do, the doctor comes in and the doctor says, I'm so excited. I've never done this before. And, you know, uh, I'll see you on the other side. Well, not the other side, but uh, I'll see you you in a few hours. You'd be like, I I don't know. I don't want the guy or the lady that's never done it before. I want the one that's done hundreds or, or thousands of them because experience there's something about experience and experience is best learned through suffering it's in the valley not in the mountaintop oh i wish it was the other way around nothing wrong with the mountaintop great place to live love the palace but there's something about the manger that teaches us experience that can be learned no other place it's it's why some people have 20 years of experience and some people have one year of experience 20 different times I mean, they keep doing the same thing. When Steph and I moved here, and uh, you know, we didn't move here to teach, we didn't move here to lead. I mean, really, when we moved here, as I've shared with you before, I ended up in the parking lot. And, uh, and, and while I was in my manger, there are just some things God taught me, and I wanna share them with you just really quick, because- While I was in my ma- Troy Gramling's the son of God. He's the Messiah. While he was in his manger. I want you to take some time 
to think about what is God teaching you? What experience are you gaining in the manger? In the challenges you're having in your relationships right now? Or where you're at financially? You know what? I was reading a magazine this morning. Miami is the 98th most miserable place. No, no, that's not right. The people who live in Miami are the 98th most miserable people in the country. In other words, they, they took... Uh, <clears throat> A survey, and it was about the number of depression, uh, you know, medicine that we take and the unemployment record and all of that. And I think we're, we're like 98. Or you could think of it like this. We're the second most miserable people in the United States. I mean, woo! All right. You know? With the worst, most miserable preachers on the planet. And so a lot of us are in the manger, evidently. I mean, we're being careful where we step. Uh, here's what I learned. The first thing I learned is don't quit. Don't quit. And when I was out there, in the, don't, don't quit. You can always quit tomorrow. You know, in other words, I'm just not going to stop today. The, the, the second thing I learned was that small deposits on a consistent basis will add up more than an occasional unloading. Now, remember, this is what he learned in the manger phase of his life because Troy's the son of God. In other words, if you really want to save money, how do you do it? You put a little bit into savings every time you get paid. You don't just every once in a while unload it. If you want to get into shape, you don't just, I mean, you exercise what? A little bit every day. You don't just go for six hours once a month and think you're going to get in shape. Hanging with God. If you want to get close to God, it's better to spend 10 minutes every day with him than to go one day a month and spend six hours with him. It's... It adds up quicker if we're consistent than every once in a while just throwing in a whole bunch. Here's the third thing that I learned. Is difficult discussions or decisions get more difficult with time. You know, that discussion you need to have with your spouse, your best friend, your boss, your employee. The longer you wait, the more difficult it's going to get. That decision you need to make that you've been putting off, hoping that somehow it would work itself out. It's not going to work itself out. It's going to work itself into a bigger problem. You just got to go ahead and make it. Here's the fourth thing that I learned is don't worry about what other people think of you. Isn't this just amazing pearls of wisdom from Troy Gramling's manger phase? Because they're not thinking of you. You know, some of us came today, we got all dressed up. We looked in the mirror and we're like, well, I just, I just hope everybody thinks I look nice. You know, well, what do you think about my shoes? Well, nobody's thinking about your shoes. They're thinking about their shoes. And what you think about their shoes. But you're not thinking about their shoes. You're thinking about your shoes and what they're thinking about your shoes. In other words, nobody's thinking about anybody else's shoes other than the one that's wearing them. Right? You can't worry about what other people are thinking. Here's, here's the fifth thing that I learned. is criticism <clears throat> is the result of doing something. It's not the result of doing something wrong. It's just the result of doing something. Oh, yeah. See, criticism, you don't get criticized when you do something wrong. No, no, no. You just do something and someone will criticize you. Something amazing about experience that can only be learned, that can only be discovered in the manger. But Jesus not only learned experience, he was also equipped. Did you guys ever go to school with somebody that every time the teacher said, get out a pencil and paper, they would lean over to you and say, hey, can I borrow a pencil and paper? Did anybody go to school with somebody like that? You know what I'm talking about? How, how many of you were that person? Notice he's not doing any biblical preaching here. And what biblical preaching he attempted to do was all out of context, and he wove together his own deceitful narrative. This is not what the Bible teaches at all. 
Right? Hey, you can't reach your destiny borrowing somebody else's tools. You've got to have your own tools to reach your destiny. It's kind of like that doctor when he comes in and he's like, uh, you know, I've never done it before and I, I left my scalpel at home. Yeah, you, you got to have your own tools if you want to reach your destiny. This is what he learned in his manger phase. You know, because, you know, I mean, he's just preaching his life as if he's the son of God, you know. Can I use your butter knife, you know? No, no, you're like, no, no, no. You're not going to use my butter knife to accomplish your destiny. You can't borrow tools. You have to get them yourself. And the only where to get them, only place to get them is in the manger. You, you remember Moses and God came to Moses on the backside of the desert. He lit up that bush. He got Moses' attention. He says, Moses, I'm going to do something in your life right now. And, and Moses starts to argue with him a little bit. Man, God, I'm 80 years old. I'm two-thirds through my life. And, and, and all these different things. And God speaks to him in Exodus chapter 4, in verse number 2. And here's what he says. He says, then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, well, it's a, it's a shepherd's staff. You see, Moses' story is all about you learning to follow the pattern. And Moses is you know, going from you know, nothing to something, you know, from zero to hero. It's the only thing I own. When I left Egypt, I left everything behind. I ran out of there as fast as I could. And Moses had the only thing that was his, his shepherd's staff. It's what he used to guide the sheep. He picked it up every day on his way out. It's the thing that he used in his business. It's the thing that he used to protect himself. Yeah. Uh-huh. By the way, yeah, th that reminded me. Y'all seen the movie Hercules? This is uh, the uh, what Troy Gramling here is preaching is not actually biblical theology. This is the theology of Disney's movie Hercules. Yeah, listen in. From that day forward, our boy Hercules could do no wrong. He was so hot, steam looked cool. Oh, yeah! Bless my soul, Herc was on a roll. Zero, zero. Now he's a hot Hero, hero. He was a kid with his ass back. Zero to hero. Zero to hero. Just like that. Muppet dance, if you know how, it's a great one to do it to. on every base. On every bar. Doing the white man overbite. Your life can be just like Hercules. You can go from zero to hero. It's like a religious experience.
So, <clears throat> sorry, I get really excited listening to that kind of music. Okay, so weird, though. Don't you think that's the mm, weird that Troy Grambling's preaching the theology, the same exact theology from Disney's Hercules, zero to hero. And the way he's pulling it off is by completely mangling the biblical text, not really telling us the story of Jesus or the Christmas story, but somehow pouring into it this theology. And this theology, of course, well, it's mythological. It's, I mean, it's not even the real story of Hercules per se, but huh, hmm. So I think Troy Grambling has been, well, greater influenced theologically by Hercules, Disney's version, than by what the Bible really teaches. Hmm, strange. Let's continue. It's the thing that he relied upon. It's the thing that was always right there beside him. He says, God, it is a shepherd's staff. And what does God ask him to do in verse 3? He says, well, throw it down on the ground. Yeah. And so Moses throws it down on the ground. Yeah. And if you keep reading, you know what happens? When he threw it down on the ground, it turned into a snake. Yeah, because God was trying to show him he had some great things, man. And I love the Bible because Moses went from zero to hero, too. It says that Moses did what you and I would do. He jumped back. Oh, wow. Because it was a snake. He didn't want to get bit. And you know what God said? God said, pick it up. Yeah. Come on, God, make me a glove or something. You know, I'm just, just pick it up. Come on. I mean, is it poisonous? You know, God says, pick it up. And Moses reached down and picked it up by the tail. And when he did, it turned back into a staff. See, there was something that happened to that staff when Moses threw it down. Something supernatural happened. Yeah, God turned it into a snake. Duh. Happened. When Moses threw it down, God added something to that staff so that when he picked it up, Man. It up. It wasn't what he threw down. The staff he threw down was just a piece of wood, but the staff he picked up divided the Red Sea. Even the staff went from zero to hero. No way! There's something about throwing down what's in your hand. No. <laughs> right? I mean, you got that thing, and God said, Man, I want you to throw it down. I want you to surrender it to me. I want you to give it to me. And he's going to turn you into a snake. <laughs> And until you give it to me, I can't supernaturally act upon it so that when you pick it up, it's not what you threw down. I mean, can you imagine if Moses would have got there with his staff and had not thrown it down? <laughs> this is just absurd. I, oh man, somebody send that boy back to seminary. Uh, they would have all drowned in the Red Sea. Yeah, because... Aren't you glad that Moses remembered to activate the, the staff so that it had the, had the special mojo powers? Because if he hadn't have done that, you know, the, everyone would have drowned in the Red Sea. He would have never been able to part it. Something about throwing it down. I was thinking about when Steph and I got ready to, to move here. Yeah, because his life is just like Moses's. And uh, God said, I want you to throw down your house. You know, because we were young and we'd just been married. And so we you could lift your house and throw it down. That's impressive. I mean, you don't even look like you work out. You know, you do what you, you do. You rent a house. You, we lived in our, uh, my father-in-law, Stephanie's parents' basement. Now, I don't know. You know, we don't have... Were you a blogger? have basements in South Florida. It's, it's, it's rooms under the ground, you know, and they, they tend to have low ceilings. And, and this one had a low ceiling and it had a ceiling fan that hit me about right here. Okay. And, and I'd be back in the kind of kitchen area or the bedroom and some. So was this in the main, still part of the manger phase of your life? But he would knock on the door and from the bedroom to the front door was the ceiling fan. 
and I would forget that it was there every single day. Well, that explains a lot, because, you know. And I'd hear that doorbell ringing, you know, thinking, ooh, that's my, you know, that's uh, Ed McMahon with my check. And, and I'd take off running, and I'd hit that ceiling fan, and it would knock me to the ground. And as I that, it probably just made you incapable of rightly handling God's word, too. Obviously, you're handicapped when it comes to biblical exegesis and goes back to the ceiling fan incidences. I was kind of waking up later. I'd think, man, this is so, so humiliating. You know? Well, finally, we bought a house, had our own house, had three bedrooms and two baths and a tile floor. I mean, it was our, it was our house. And God said, I want you to, I want you to throw it down. I want you to give it to me and move to Florida. Did he turn it into a snake? And Steph and I threw that down and we moved here. We didn't move to South Florida into a palace. We moved into a, a mobile home. Now, nothing wrong with a mobile home, but it wasn't near as nice as the house that we threw down. But you know what? A couple of years ago, Steph and I were able to move into a home that's just beautiful. Uh, did you do a circle maker prayer in order for that to happen, or did, did you pray a sunstand still prayer, or did you chase the wild goose? I'm, you know, home that's so much nicer for us than the house that we threw down. See, because when you throw down what's in your hand, God does something to it so that when you pick it up, it's not what you threw down. Ah! When we got ready to move here, the other thing God told me to throw down was was my teaching. You know. I mean, I mean, we, we had planned. Well, it's obvious God didn't pick it up. The church, we had started a church. I had given up coaching so that I could be a pastor, so that I could be a teacher. When I moved here, I yelled a lot because I was serving in the parking lot. But I wasn't teaching. I wasn't preaching. And, and, and God said, man, I want, you to, I want you to throw that down. And I just remember being here and different things happening. And, and so, man, I, but can I tell you something? See, God wanted me to throw that down so that he could do something in my teaching so that when I would pick it up, it'd be more powerful. Yeah, notice, by the way, none of this makes any sense. Really, how do you throw down your teaching? Mm -hmm. uh, what does that mean exactly? It doesn't mean anything then than it was when I threw it down, that God does something and there's something in your life that God wants you to throw it down. And you're like, you don't understand, God. It's the only thing that I have. It's really, God wants me to throw something down. Oh, hang on a second here. <clears throat> Here's a bottle of uh, Staples Clean Your Computer Screen Fluid. Hang on. There. I just threw it down. Didn't turn into a snake or nothing. What, what if I pick it up? Thing that I use every single day. It may be a relationship. It may be a home. It may be finances. But God says that if you'll throw it down, when you pick it back up, it's going to be supernaturally activated. Hang on a second. I'm going to see if the, my uh, screen cleaning fluid is now supernaturally activated. Here, let's see here. Nope. It works just the same. It's nothing supernatural. I threw it down. Huh. Weird. Nothing happened. And what you pick up is not going to be what you threw down. It's going to be more powerful. It's going to accomplish what you need to accomplish. To well, hang on. Let's see. I mean, I, I, now I've got my screen wet. Let's see if it's more powerful now that I threw it down. Um, yeah, I'm just not noticing any noticeable difference. I mean, okay, so I... Maybe it's I, I should grab the screen cleaning fluid from Office Max and throw that down instead and see if it if it becomes supernaturally activated. Live your destiny, but you gotta throw it down.
The Bible says in 1 Peter, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, he will lift you up. Yeah. So don't allow your circumstances today to determine your tomorrow. You got to learn to enjoy where you're at on the way to where you're going. Uh-huh. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses has led the people of God out of bondage. and So he's out of the wilderness manger thing now, and he's, well, what phase is he in exactly? Kind of on their way to the promised land, and the, God takes Moses to this mountaintop, and he gives him the Ten Commandments. You heard of the Ten Commandments, you know? And he writes them in stone. Now, while God and Moses are on the top of the mountain writing out the Ten Commandments, one of them which says, you know, not to have any idols, you know what the people of God are doing? They're building an idol golden calf and Moses gets all upset and throws down the stone tablets and they break into pieces and God says you know what he says I I'm done with you he says you can go to the promised land but you're going by yourself I'm not going with you and Moses is like no God you, you can't do that God we'll never make it without you we need your power we we need your passion and and, and God relents and he says I'll go and Moses is like, well, God, I want to see your power, man. I, I, want, to, I want to experience your presence. And God says, are you really serious? This is, how are you getting any of the, this from that story? I mean, really? You can't. No Notice he's not reading it. If he was reading it, he couldn't make any of these claims. This is absurd. No man can see my face and live. And so in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 22, here's what happened. God's speaking to Moses and he says, as my glorious presence, because God says, okay, I'm going to walk in front of you, but here's what we're going to do. When my presence passes by, I'm going to hide you in the crevice of a rock. And God says, I'm going to cover your face with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'm going to take away my hand and you'll see my back. But nobody can see my face and live. And what does all of that mean? I was here listening to someone teach uh, just the other day. Hey, here's what you can write down. What does all that mean? Is that you may not see him coming, but you will always know when he's been there. In other words, when Moses was on the backside of the desert, he... he <laughs> I just am speechless. I mean, this is the most this absurd stuff I've ever heard in my life. This guy doesn't know how to hold a single biblically lucid thought in his brain. It's, obviously, it's from the low-hanging ceiling fan incident. He didn't see God coming. He's just out on a normal day doing what he had always done. He didn't know that God was coming his way. But can I tell you, he knew he had been there when the bush lit up and God took him and used him to set his people free. I remember when we were in Arkansas and our things in our life were kind of falling apart. It was a normal, average, ordinary day. I just got up like I had always got up. And then all of a sudden, I got a phone call that invited me to South Florida and radically changed my life. You, you see what I've discovered is that God, God works suddenly. You don't see him coming, but you know when he's been there. Man, we moved to South Florida and we're out there in the parking lot and it's not exactly what I thought. It's not exactly what I expected. And I'm like, God, man, why can't I teach? Why, why can't I have an opportunity? But then suddenly, Pastor Dan asked me if I would teach on a Wednesday and it forever changed my life. Because you may not see God coming in your life, but I'll tell you something. You'll always know when he's been there. Because when God... Yeah, uh, listen, don't be blaming God for you teaching.
uh, it's obvious that based upon the fact you can't handle God's word, God doesn't want you teaching. How you turned out to be teaching is probably a judgment from God, not to feed his sheep, but... God shows up. God does something. He takes you out of the manger and he puts you in the palace. He allows you to run after your destiny. Man, I remember the church kind of going. It's a normal day, just ordinary day. Got up, got dressed like I always do. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> I got a phone call or had someone walk up to me and say, hey, I think we ought to put the next series on TV. Since they were paying for it, I thought it was a good idea too. And that radically changed my life and the direction of this church. Can I, can I tell you Cue sappy music. Um, something God does suddenly. Yeah, yeah, that sounds so amazing. Yeah, God does suddenly. Yeah, just throw an adverb in there. God does slowly. God does drippingly. God does sappily. It just sounds profound, doesn't it? You know, kind of work. Just suddenly, it may be a rainy kind of day. It may be a normal day. You, you, you just do what you've always done. You, yeah, because God does rainily. Just get up and you put your pants on like you've always put your pants on. You yeah, may because you're, you might still be in your manger phase and thinking you'll never have the great glory in the palace. So you put your pants on thinking it's just like any other mangery kind of day. And, and then God will suddenly do something. They come to a service because somebody happened to ask you to come to a service. And so you come kind of doing your religious duty. But suddenly, God knows where you're at. Suddenly, God finds the chair you're at. And he comes to you and he radically changes your life. And your life is never the same again. It's suddenly, suddenly you are accepted. This is like a complete string of absurdities. You are highly favored. Yeah, you are highly favored, just like Mary. For some of us, it's time to get out of the manger and move in the direction of the palace. For some of us, it's time to throw down that thing that we've hung on to for so long. For some of us, it is our spiritual suddenly moment. And this is your moment. You only came. Yeah, because, I mean, are you looking for your spiritual suddenly moment? Oh, bring, your, bring the poop from your manger up because you're getting ready to throw it down into your kingdom and make progress towards your kingdom. Because somebody asked you. But God found you, didn't he? And the whole time I've been talking, God's been talking to you. He's saying, you know what? That, that, that's you. He's talking to you. Man, man that's yeah, what's he saying? What's going on in your life? No, no, I, God, I'm back here. No, nobody can see what's going on in my Nobody knows me. Nobody. nobody knows me. God, you know, I'm just the geeky, nerdy guy at the seventh grade dance that none of the really cool girls want to dance with. They just want to make fun of me, God, because I was born in a manger. No, no, God says, no, he's talking to you. This is your sudden... He, no, it's my suddenly <gasps> found where you're at and he wants to do something with where you're at. He yeah, he wants to think be do my process, right? He wants to do something with you forever change your spiritual eternity. But you got to you got to surrender. Right, you got to throw it down. Yeah, you you got to step 
towards him. And so in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Yeah, I'm sure you will. I don't even know what it means. If you're here and God... Which direction is he so I can step there? ...found where you're at. This is your suddenly. Yeah, you haven't been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. You're being brought to greatness. And he found the chair you're sitting in. Maybe you're watching online or on... It's your lucky day television and the last thing you expected was to encounter God but he found you oh I had no idea it's your suddenly it's, yes it's my suddenly oh I finally feel like I can have some strength to carry on because my suddenly has come and you gotta decide whether you're gonna throw it down and be obedient throw what down are you just gonna hope that it'll pass uh huh. Listen to me. You didn't see God coming, but you will know right. that He has been here. Yeah, because He does. He likes to work in secret. Yeah, you said that. Gonna take courage. In a moment, I'm gonna pray, and at the end of this prayer, I'm gonna pray for us. Please don't. Into this prayer, we're gonna sing one last song together, and I'm gonna invite you. If you're here, and this is your suddenly, are you gonna sing Hercules Zero to Hero? Man, God's grabbed your heart. God's been speaking to you. To About what? Just come and join me here at the front. Not gonna do anything weird, not gonna do anything crazy. The whole sermon has been weird. We're just gonna finish singing the song and then I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. The power of, of throwing down to embrace your density. Simple prayer, but a prayer that suddenly can change your life today and your eternity tomorrow. Don't let where you're at today determine where you're going to be tomorrow. Would you bow your head? No, you don't get to pray for me at all. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Yeah, the ultimate insult from the movie Billy Madison. Uh, this is unbelievable. That, folks, was the worst excuse for a Christmas sermon that I have ever heard in my entire life. I mean, Troy Gramling has no business teaching Bible to a group of preschoolers who still haven't learned the English language yet, let alone leading a church. That was abysmal, narcissistic, eisegetical ridiculousness. And this demonstrates perfectly what's wrong in so many churches today. He needs to repent because I don't even know what he believes, but if he believes what he just preached, that somehow the Christmas story is about him or you or me, well, may God have mercy on his soul because he doesn't even know what the biblical gospel is. He doesn't even know what the Christian faith is. How did he become a pastor? He needs to go back to working in the parking lot. Even that might be too dangerous of a place. He probably shouldn't even be allowed on church property. Unbelievable. So there you go. That, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, how do you undo that damage?
I mean, was Christ preached? No, he, <laughs> Jesus, the story, the pieces about Jesus, that was all emptied of it. I mean, talk about a Christless um, Christmas sermon. So I don't want to hear nobody complaining about the fact that Walgreen, the lady at Walgreen said happy holidays. That's what's wrong with the Christian church right now. That's the problem. You know, I'm just going to go and cool off. Anyway, um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Christmas is about him and what he did. Sorry, I did it again. See you later. Bye.